Hi everyone and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi show. Today I have somebody with me who is joining us all the way from Sri Lanka. Shireen Saroor is the co-founder of Manar Women's Development Federation, MWDF and Women's Action Network in Sri Lanka. It's a collective of 11 women's group that have been working on advocacy for women's rights and documentation with a focus in north and east of Sri Lanka. Challenges faced by Shireen in her own experience of being forced evicted and displaced along with all the family members of a community from the north by the LTTE in 1990 laid the foundation for her activism. In 2004, the John B. Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice elected Shreen as one of the women peacemakers and later that year she was awarded a two-year Echoing Green Fellowship to build a model resettlement village bringing together Tamil and Muslim displaced community in her hometown Manar. Shreen, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful Wonderful to have you on the show today. So, Shireen, I want to understand a little bit about your background. You know, um, you know, what was, who were you twenty years ago when, when uh, you know, you when you were living in Sri Lanka? How was your life? What were you doing? And what led to this? Um, you know the current uh, professional uh, state that you are in, where you've 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 done so much in, with regards to women's rights and communities. So just give us a brief background about yourself. So, um, as you pointed out, uh, the the eviction of the northern Muslims happened in 1990. Uh, so uh, October. Um, so we are celebrating 30 years of uh, expulsion of northern Muslims and still being in displacement, not acknowledged by the state that we are still refugees within the country. Um, so uh, when we got evicted, uh, uh, my hometown is Mana. That's how my organization is also uh, there. So it's Mana Women's Development Federation. Um, I was studying uh, uh, in Colombo, capital. Uh, I was reading for my business administration degree. I was a first year student uh, when the Tamil Tigers evicted the entire northern uh, population. That's 5% of the northern population happened to be Muslims. We were about 75,000 people. So it basically, it was to walk miles and miles to cut across and come and take vehicles. Whereas in my hometown, it's an island. So they broke both the bridges that connected um, uh, the island to the mainland. So therefore, people were forced into small fishing boats to come and land in a place called um, Puttalam. And to date, uh, you will see refugee camps in Puttalam. So my activism started there. When I was a first year student, my father would go back uh, to Putlam camps. Uh, we were some of the lucky families because we had avenues to get to capital and establish ourselves. Uh, my father was an educationist, so he got hold of a school and then he was a, he became like, you know slowly a principal of that school. So we were privilege uh, you know um, group of people but still uh, I was able to go with my father just to see the plight of those uh, evicted northern Muslim many of them uh, uh, you know are kin uh, of our, our, our family as well and um, what I saw was very problematic because the northern Muslims uh, 
you know like uh, you know culturally we shared a lot of similarity with the tamils in the north uh, therefore even we were cursed that we are not uh, uh, you know kind of like muslims that would resonate with the rest of the country because we were uh, we our rituals our way of living and everything was uh, connected to the tamil community particularly education the muslim community from the north was highly educated because the tamils educated their children therefore we were also getting access to education so when i uh, was in puttalam and i was finding it very difficult to stomach number one thing was that my age of uh, uh, girls were dropping out of university and entering university you know advanced level sitting for the exams and all young girls uh, were married off at a very young age age 16 14 and all because there is a law that a muslim law that a personal law that allows uh, you know um, child uh, marriages and then also lots of women have to go out and uh, earn a living so lots of them have to venture out and in that process they also many of them migrated to middle east as domestic workers and various other uh, forms of migration and those uh, so we were looked at uh, you know like somebody who asked for punishment because we were not living like uh, the piety that is being portrayed uh, as uh, how the muslim community was living in putlam so we needed to kind of like convert ourselves into assimilate with uh, this group of muslims uh, who are uh, you know like who were following different culture in that particular time so it bothered me a lot because uh, i thought this is not something that we really would you know would uh, want to our my community and also i watched lots of women resisting conservatism and their children's education they really wanted their kids to go to school even though the schools were not ready to accommodate them uh, but at the same time women were also resisting when Uh, uh they were given uh, inedible rice and all they were burning it and also like i saw lots of resilience in those uh, women's uh, way of looking at uh, what they want immediately they mobilized in the camps uh, they there were health volunteers they were all helping each other and all then i also got to go to mana that that half, only after my studies uh, i joined canadian international development agency so at that point of time the war was at very like it, it was at its peak yeah. so i could only go with canadian flag to the north uh, right so i went to mana so when i went to mana then i saw the same plight uh, happening to the tamil people also they were also getting displaced we at least got displaced only once they were constantly de- getting displaced with one shopping bag one piece of cloth they were running one from one end to the other end even my hometown uh, my own home uh, was kind of a sheltering about 20 people when i went there it was all shelled and destroyed and all but still people were trying to live there whatever possible way and now then also like i saw lots of uh, women complaining about their children being forcibly taken by tamil tigers uh, so the plight of those children the plight of the northern uh, muslims who were uh, taking shelter in puttalam really made me to think that women struggles are different uh, forms and then we could connect to each other because uh, that muslim women were telling that their children are bo- you know born in refugee camp so therefore their birth certificate said camp number 
uh, refugee camp number one. So why should we be refugees in our own country? Then uh, Tamil women in their part of the uh, you know country, they were telling that they they were constantly on the run and their children are born to be slaughtered uh, in the war. So in that context only, I founded MENA Women's Development Federation in 1998. Um, when I, I mean, I decided to go back uh, after my education and I also have, I needed to put my family uh, in a very, uh, at least in a strong, uh, stable condition because my father died immediately after the eviction. So being an eldest in the family, I needed to shoulder the responsibility. So after that, I went to MENA founded MENA Women's Development Federation with my sisters, Tamil sisters. And I also studied in a convent. So therefore, it was easy for me to connect to because uh, previously the we didn't have Muslim school, Tamil school, singular school. There were schools, but then girls were allowed to go to any school that is the best in your town. Yeah. So I was going to a convent. So I had connection to my Tamil sisters and I went back and founded MWDF. Since then, no go back. Uh, I've been doing activism. Uh, people are slowly going back. So, uh, and also like uh, we have, we were able to uh, connect to other women's groups also in the North and the East. And uh, in the aftermath of war in 2009, we founded Women's Action Network collectively uh, to address Tamil women's issues, because at that point of time, Tamil women couldn't address their issues because they were threatened so much. They were all in concentration camps. Yeah. Uh, so when that happened, the Muslim women stepped up and started going into camps and recording their, you know, like uh, uh, evidence for whatever what happened to those women, particularly sexual abuse, yeah. disappearance and all. So we started uh, moving forward there onward as Women's Action Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this entire war had led to a systematic damage of infrastructure, land, property, destruction of the social fabric, family structures. How has, um, you know, your work sort of um, enabled the women to, I mean, you're saying, you know, how they went, the education became part of their lives, uh, you know, you, 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 you were able to um, bring different women from different community to work together. But how was the the i mean i don't want to use the term male but the men in in within the family social fabric structure how was how were they taking it because you know from what i can hear the women were in charge they were sort of leading the healing process post war or through the war so that's uh, that's the oxygen for my work actually how women resist all sorts of uh, atrocities um, you know, um, uh, what do you call, they build their house, uh, life from ashes. I call them phoenix. Um, whereas I found men feeling tired, not being able to do anything, or there is enmity, I have to go and take revenge and all those things. Whereas the women, it's easy. Uh, because it's a common agony that they shared. Okay, my child is being taken away by LTT. Here I am, but you all have been evicted. Let's talk together what we can do. Uh, at the same time, state is also warmongering on us. State is not recognizing us as IDP. So all these masculine structures, all these powers are the ones that, uh, that, that we needed to question as women uh, working to better 
everybody's life, particularly the future generation. But do you think um, Muslim women issues or just even women issues right now, as we are discussing, are deliberately or unnecessarily muted? Say uh, the same transitional justice processes when the constitutional reforms uh, process started, women in numbers went for consultation. <clears throat> One of the very positive thing is Muslim women. Uh, from various places, the commissioners who uh, went to listen to uh, people from what kind of a constitution that they need, they said, why are the Muslim women coming in numbers? They are crying and they are ta talking about Article 16 of the constitution. What is this? So very interestingly, what is Article 16 of the constitution in Sri Lanka says is protecting all the customary uh, practices, unwritten laws and regulation that are prior to our constitution becoming what it is, 1978 constitution. So the Muslim personal law, or we call it Muslim Marriage and Divorce Act, was 1951 that came to Sri Lanka after the independence, never been touched. There has been no, not much reform, right? So it, it, it now one of the example is it, it doesn't uh, give an age of marriage, uh, you know, like a solid age of marriage, whereas other women in Sri Lanka, it's age 18. It's yeah. compulsory that you can't marry before that. But Muslim women, if they are 14, the parents give consent. Below 14, you have to go to Kazi, which means a newborn baby can be married off. So which, which era that we are living? Uh, and then the Kazi quote, the Kazi is a good character male. So woman cannot get anywhere, right? Uh, there is no compulsory registration of marriage. There is no condi condition for polygamy. There are so many flawed things. So the women not only asked for reform of the law, they went one step ahead. They said the constitution itself is treating Muslim women unequal because the fundamental rights chapter of Sri Lanka says everybody should be treated equally in the constitution. Uh, through the constitution, uh, through Sri Lankan law, everybody should be treated equally. Whereas this particular law is treating the Muslim women as third grade, uh, you know, citizens. So therefore they went and asked, we need this. So there were lots of anti-Muslim uh, attacks, uh, pogroms, uh, you know, even some regulations uh, that uh, really made Muslims not to practice their religion uh, the way that they practice, like halal food to um, their businesses and their, their prayers in the mosque, uh, all those things they were trying to control. Um, so in, that, uh, in th that context, many of us who articulated for Muslim personal law reform, who have been looked at by my own community as traitors, these people are going and asking this government, no, we should talk and sort it out this. In fact, my senior colleagues and activists, um, my mentors have been working on these issues for 30 years within the community. It didn't, it didn't give us anything. So that's when we started talking about it's women's issues in Sri Lanka. It's a, a portion of women who are discriminated. Therefore, every woman should work on this issue. 
right so then there was a lot of backlash on us saying that why these women are now showing what is uh, happening within our community we shouldn't talk about all these things because already our community is under attack and all i mean quite a lot of attack on my colleagues even fatwas being issued and all those things but still we moved forward but at the same time we also pointed to the government the conservatism the fundamentalism religious fundamentalism that was growing in certain part of sri lanka we were whistleblowers we were telling that there was something going wrong in the eastern province because the way that women were asked to cover where the way the children were sent to madrasas and all there was something wrong so we were constantly 2017 onward what was causing this wrong to take place so basically one is the way the the muslim community suffered uh, because the suffering of the muslim community even last 30 years of the war i mean i am a good example my community has not been acknowledged by anybody not even international community because sri lanka ethnic conflict is plainly studied at by binary uh, tamil tigers or tamils and the singalese right muslims are left out so every time a peace process or any negotiation muslim community we look after you later then that also gave birth to lots of muslim political parties also uh, particularly one particular political party from the eastern province that that came based on religious identity uh, so with all those things um, there has been this uh, uh what do you call anti muslim kind of like um, sentiment that has been systematically uh, used by some of the extreme single and nationalist politicians say for example one politician actually won election saying that muslims are going to take over sri lanka like bangladesh sri lanka will be uh, muslims uh, like population wise muslims will take over because they are multiplying in numbers now they are we are only 9% in this country there is no way that we will be able to take over sri lanka right so there has been this false allegation there was an allegation against a doctor a muslim doctor who has been operating on tamil gynecologist he is operating on singular women to make them not to produce uh you know like things like that and then there was an allegation not to eat in any of our eatery because sri lankan muslims are very uh, famous for food so lots of, i mean the singalese and tamils like to eat in our eateries we were thriving as um, restaurants and businesses so they, they there was a systematic campaign by bodu bala sena it's like uh, um Myanmar's Ashin Viradu and nine six nine. So these particular Buddhist monks and the other Buddhist monks and politicians got together and asked everybody to boycott Muslim food because we are putting contraception into our food, the food when we serve it to other community. Therefore, other community will not be able to produce. So there have been lots of things, and then our Muslim women who were covering and all were targeted and all. So the community as a whole was coming like very. Uh, Well, close community, right? Yeah. In that context, there was also a, a justification that we we are becoming a piety, uh, a piety movement, like community that is like uh, very much uh, towards religion and all. And then the anti-Muslim sentiment uh, outside Sri Lanka, the 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 world was also waging uh, war against Muslims and all. So all this notion made lots of young people to. go backward 
becoming conservative, right? So then uh, there is also Arabization because lots of our people migrated, uh, you know, they're working uh, in the Middle Eastern countries. In fact, we have about 600,000 people, Sri Lankans working in Middle Eastern countries. So our food habit, our way of looking at other people, our dress code, everything has been kind of a, getting kind of a Arabization. So with all those things, the, the other communities, there's been a lot of enmity towards the Muslim community. Why are they doing this? And, you know, like, uh, because we were also isolating ourselves. So in that context, when this, this whole um, piety movement and divisions that we had national Tawfiq Jamaat, Tablik Jamaat, I, I mean, I don't know, there are various groups, uh, sect. Uh, you know, Hafi, uh, Hanafi, Maliki. So these are things that unheard. When I was uh, living in the North, we are just Tamil speaking Muslims. Our religion was in that four wall and then the mosque. We, do, we didn't impose anything on other people. We didn't specifically ask for halal food when we went anywhere. Here I see even the water bottle has halal symbol. I don't know why a water bottle should have halal symbol. Right? We, we were also overexerting our... Uh, uh, our religious uh, demands and all those things. So then we saw this, like my traditionally, my mother, when she goes out, she will take the sari, uh, this thing and put it on her head. That's the only uh, difference between a Tamil singular woman and a Muslim woman. Now you cover the woman in like full black abaya and a face also. So for the other community, that is like, uh, you know, like 91% of the community here, who are these people? Strangers, right? So, you know, they started calling them name, uh, Goni Billai, somebody who come and catch you. Childhood, they, they make you scared. This person is going to catch. So the Muslim women are equated to that, right? They, were start, uh, they started throwing stones at our women. Um, they are, they have been, so the identity marker of the community became the women. So we were telling that there's something drastically wrong because everywhere where you see Islamic terrorism, that it was always waged on their own women. Either the women are not allowed to educate themselves, they are being asked to cover, or they are being punished, they are being penalized, they are being forced to conceive babies and all those things. So we were telling there's something wrong. This is not the Muslim community that we know of. We were whistleblowing since 2017, but nothing doing. The government didn't take any notice. Even as late as February 14th, you know, just before the April uh, bombing, we were telling, we were telling even the powerful people uh, that this is something wrong. There is something wrong. And the videos came on these, uh, you know, the turn out to be terrorists. We were, because they were, they were attacking us. Uh, very interestingly, after the suicide bombing, the, the Sri Lankan intelligence came and said, you better be careful because terrorists had your name on their website and Facebook and all those things. Because they were attacking us because we were asking for reform of Muslim personal law. We were telling this whole Arabization is wrong. We were telling Madrasa reform. We were talking about all these things prior. So we were whistleblower, but nobody listened to us. Now we are in a status where the Muslim community is now under attack, a collective punishment is given to my community right now. So like when you say that, you know, a few days before the bombing, you reached out to the government, how, like, how were you aware of what was going to happen or what sort of research were you working on? What was going on from your side that led you to 
uh, you know, raising the red flag, which unfortunately, as you mentioned, was not uh, noticed by anybody. So we kind of uh, raised this systematically for uh, over a period of uh, years, I would say, at least two years. Uh, because uh, this guy didn't come all of a sudden, uh, the, the main suicide bomber, Saharan. Uh, he has been causing a lot of pandemonium uh, in the eastern province. And there have been quite a lot of attack on some of my colleagues who have been working on issues like child marriage, teenage pregnancy and all those things. Like when we uh, did data gathering and all those things, um, uh, they, are, they also ran a media kind of like online media outlet. They would name and shame our women. Uh, they would also get onto their personal family photographs and attack uh, one of my colleagues, young, I'm a teenage child. And so they were doing all sorts of uh, attacks. So like we found it very difficult to deal with these people because every time we made complaint and all, they were protected uh, either by uh, the law enforcement or by various, uh, you know, like powerful people. So, you know, like anyhow, we fought against Sri Lankan uh, uh, male hierarchy, leave alone whether it's a Muslim male hierarchy, because the entire parliament, the men were like wandering, you know, like even though they know that there is an injustice to Muslim women, they were very much um, not kind of like wanting to do this reform of Muslim personal law. They kept saying you have to talk to your own men. So we had out of 225 parliamentarians, we had 22, I think, at that point of time when we were lobbying. And the government then was uh, very much uh, uh, kind of like uh, government was formed. The, the good governance government was formed working with the, the Muslim political parties. So they were also locked there. So every time that we went and made complaints, even the last bit of the complaints that we made, uh, the Muslim leaders have been called and asked, and then they would say, uh, you know, these women are like so feminist. Uh, they are all making false allegation. It's not serious. There are people, conservative people, they are attacking them, but these are not people capable of blowing themselves up and all. We had specific videos where this, uh, the major suicide bomber uh, kept saying that he's going to blow. Uh, people will pick up pieces of body body pieces and also like we we were translating all those things and trying to give it to the authorities because primarily because we felt that there were people who were following them also, which was highly problematic because we as women always want to have peace. And also this was a transitional justice process this time. There, is, there was no need for us to, you know, talk about, talk about this kind of like, you know, like the violent uh, that he was uh, hate mongering basically. Uh, at the same time, there were Buddhist monks who were hate mongering, but then this fed into each other. This guy hate mongering and the Buddhist monk hate mongering. So that, ultimately impacted the people of the country. Either women went so backward or they went uh, further covering or some women were compelled to remove their face mask and like whatever they, the, the face cover and then uh, the attire and all because they, they were asked to wear colored abaya. So first they said, wear black abaya, the men. Then they said, okay, now you wear colored abaya. First they said, cover the face. Then they said, remove the face. So they were playing their politics on us. We only asked for reform of Muslim personal law to be having 
equal rights as Sinhala and Tamil women. Now, Sri Lankan Muslims are under one country, one law. They can't even bury their janasas. Under COVID, Sri Lankan government has brought in a regulation that all dead bodies have to be cremated. But it's not only all COVID impacted bodies are cremated, but also suspected COVID dead bodies are cremated. As I am speaking, every Muslim in the house, old Muslims are so scared to die. They are not accessing any medical uh, facilities. They are not taking any medicine. They are so scared to die. They are not getting out anywhere. And they are telling their children to get them out of the country because they want a proper burial. Um, and uh, janasas are being seized from the family, even if average person just died of cancer or died of some form of heart attack. There is a compulsory PCR test. So we have to take our dead bodies. It is put in a morgue where other bodies are stored. Then the PCR becomes positive. They don't know any concept of coffin. You are asked to bring a coffin. Uh, you know, then only one person is allowed. That person is forced to sign. If you don't sign the consent to cremate, you are not allowed to see the face of your father or your mother. So, you know, like the, the children are all like, you know, like when their family members, mostly old people, when they die, they are so scared. Um, no leadership given by our politician, no leadership given so by our Muslim leadership. Are they involved in the process? Is there any, or it's sort of like their choice to accept and go with what the state is asking them to do? So the first mistake came when the first person died, uh, a Muslim died in, in, um, in Nigambu. I have to say Nigambu because it is the, uh, the most suffered town of the Easter bombing. There was a church that got blown, uh, you know, they, they blow it off. And then about 110 or 111 people, children mostly died there. So when this Muslim, first Muslim death happened, uh, obviously um, the JMO there wanted to cremate. So we had a health regulation by the Sri Lankan Health Authority saying burial or cremation following the WHO health line. Uh, health guideline, right? But what happened was uh, our leadership, um, political leadership was uh, not handling the issue properly. And then uh, there was tension there as well because that particular Muslim who died is a, a IDP like me, came from North. So the receiving community didn't take a proper position. They were all uh, very much in a disarray. Overnight, they went and cremated that body while the circular was there the burial option was there then the health ministry in order to hide everything they removed the circular overnight and then thereafter every muslim died they were cremating um very interestingly the before the first muslim died the uh, the muslim community was told that they can do a deep burial therefore two deep graves uh, were dug in one of the Kalambu uh, burial ground. Uh, but the police then went on and forced uh, the people to, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, fill it uh, because they don't want anybody to be uh, buried. So the rushed manner, the state uh, worked to punish the Muslims. Uh, and, the, and then uh, so-called Al-Silon Jamiyatul Ulama 
the head appeared on TV and said it's okay to accept the ashes. So that was the major mistake because the entire Sri Lanka was watching because the Muslim community was suffering of this cremation that young people were all on social media, Facebook, you know, saying what, what has happened to our community? Why no leadership? And apparently the leader, uh, the, the religious leader appear on TV and say, it is okay to cremate. So thereafter, the Sri Lankan state took that as an ex excuse. And then the politicians also, like some of the politicians said, we had to be very careful, uh, you know, like virus can spread and all those things. Well, so there was no scientific argument given to us. It is all emotional, but we accepted it. Even our community, the first few deaths, our community people were also saying, or oh, few deaths, no, it's okay, and all. This is where we, when we compromise on fundamental rights, even for one person, it comes to haunt you. And thereafter, it is a curse on your community. Now we can't correct it because Rajapakshas brought this genie out, and now they can't put the genie back because every time an option of burial is talked about or negotiated by our community, the, the, the anti-Muslim elements come out, including some of the professional people, the environmentalists, the JMOs, they are all paid by these anti-Muslim uh, you know, groups and they are all on TV. So the, even the president said, yes, there's a possibility now, uh, you know, eight months have gone, maybe we can think about it, but uh, you know, like the anti-Muslim elements are not going to uh, do this and also, uh, one thing that I understand as a person who has studied Sri Lankan politics, every time that the, the politicians or the leader of this country, when they can't fix the problem, whether it's economy or some issues with regard to the country, they want a common enemy or they want to, they want to rouse the sentiment of the majority. So now what now they the economically Sri Lanka is suffering so much. They haven't handled the pandemic properly because this the second wave came primarily because the government was so loose with regard to bringing people, um, particularly a particular garment factory brought people from outside and then thereafter the cluster started. So in order to cover all those things, they wanted the Muslims to suffer. Basically, uh, you know, the regime, uh, went on saying the Muslims are the COVID carriers. They are spreading COVID. Only Muslims are the people who are not listening to anybody. Uh, so basically, the, for, for entire COVID uh, situation, the Muslims of Sri Lanka has been blamed. Okay, we have run out of time again. This is really interesting. Um, <laughs> we could go on, but um, thank you so much for you know coming on the show and and sharing uh, such important and insightful um, you know details about the situation in Sri Lanka. And I hope that uh, you enjoyed having this conversation as much as I enjoyed having you on. And um, thank you so much for taking your time out. And uh, for those of you who've just joined in, thank you so much for watching the Sanya Faruqi show. I hope that you will subscribe to us on YouTube. You will follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and um, hope to see you again next week. Thank you for watching.